who's a chemistry expert? Oh, good. We can, oh, wait. We can talk about anything then this morning. Um, hey, wasn't last, I, I got to hear um, last week's sermon, uh, Dave Banks, and, and I tell you what, somebody said to me once, man, Keith, you move around way too much on the stage. I, I am not Dave Banks. I'm just telling you, Dave Banks will, will preach in the other room and maybe down the street so you guys can hear. One of the biggest takeaways listening to a sermon, thank you, Dave, for doing that. And it's such a, it's such a blessing having you part of our community here that we can hear from, uh, from God through you and uh, blessed to, to be ministered through your preaching as well. Um, one of the things he said just really stuck with me and has resonated with me as I heard the sermon is that um, uh, Christianity, this is not a, a spectator sport. This is uh, in the game sport, like get involved and be part of it. And so at Epic Life, we preach constantly, talking about constantly this idea of evangelism, about sharing the gospel, the good news of Jesus with our neighbors, constantly. And there's a reason for that. We want to encourage this, the community of believers to talk to their friends who are going to spend an eternity without Christ so that they can spend an eternity with Christ. There's, there's a purpose for evangelism. At some point, somebody came to you, somebody um, risked a lot, somebody was obedient and, uh, um, and followed through in their belief to share the gospel with you. Maybe it was your parents, maybe it was a Sunday school teacher or a pastor or somebody in your past that, that shared the gospel with you and you gave your life to Christ. And I think it's, in my, my mind, I, I think of Jack Asbell as I, um, uh, as I sat down with him, this older man, I mean, I was seven, so he was, he was ancient. I, it, it could have been 40, I don't know, at the time, right? And uh, I sat down with him, and, and he, and this is just, just ready to give my life to Christ and, and to understand that more and more and then grow up in that in the church and with the community of believers. So um, I just want to encourage us to do the same. Last, last week I was in Texas, and while I was in Texas, I got to share the word with a couple churches and a couple different people. So throughout the week, Friday night to um, Monday afternoon, just before I stepped onto the airplane, I spoke in front of or shared with people one-on-one about 10 or 12 different times and just talk, 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 and just going and going. And, and what was beautiful about it, I was just talking about Epic Life Church and what we get to do here in North Seattle. And it was so fun and so encouraging. There's something that an old friend of mine, he is old, he's 80-something now, so old as an old mentor of mine said to me, Keith, you're the keeper of the stories. Make sure you tell the stories. Men and women, if you're a Christ follower, you have stories of how God is engaged in your life, and we need to be telling them, telling them to each other, testifying to one another, so that we can be encouraged to go forward and to share more, uh, to be encouraged in our own faith and strengthened in our own faith. But also tell those stories to people who don't know Christ. Um, like happened on the airplane on the way home and talking to this guy who said, I think what the problem with the world is, is there's hopelessness. I'm like, all right, enter there. Let me tell you about hope. And, uh, and so just great. It's just important for us to testify about what God has done. So I got to testify uh, in front of this church on Sunday, the last Sunday, and preach. And then uh, um, afterwards, during their kind of their Sunday school hour, I guess, uh, everybody stayed in the room instead. And then I had an hour and a half, any speaker's dream, right, an hour and a half to talk about Epic Life Church. And I just talked about ministry and what God has done in, in Seattle and how he's brought together the miraculous and shared with us and, 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 and grow, grown us and um, raised us up and strengthened us. And, 
and just got to share this. And afterwards, it was just, it was such a blessing. And I, I was basically bragging on you guys, right, and bragging on Epic Life and, and what we get to do on the street here and uh, among the business owners and the business network and inside of our, our neighborhood and in the city and with our, our business, Pilgrim Coffee, and just got to share this story. And if you've heard the story from the very beginning and what God has done, the miraculous. And, and person after person afterwards coming up and just saying, it really encouraged me in this way. This really encouraged me in this way. Another couple come up and said, we just feel like we're, we're called to be part of a church planting. We just feel like we should do this. Now, what was very intimidating about this church is that they're right next to a seminary. And there's a whole bunch of seminary professors in there. Like one was a Greek New Testament scholar. Try preaching to a Greek New Testament scholar, right? Or, or another Old Testament scholar, right? The Hebrew scholar. And all these kind of different scholars are in the service. And, and I just had to kind of put them over here and like, I'm going to preach anyway. And however it turns out, we're going to see. And if they come up to me and say, well, you, you did, I mean, that's not what that word means. Um, they're going to do that. But they didn't. So it turned out okay. Or maybe they're talking to Dale this week, and they're like, never have that guy back because. <laughs> so this morning, we're going to keep going into the book of Ephesians. This is a, such a fantastic passage. There's so much to preach on in this passage. I think Ephesians is such a fun uh, book for us to preach on, and, and just the, the concepts in here. And I guess what we're trying to pull out of the book of Ephesians is this idea that we have been identified for purpose. So if you have your journals today, if you got one of these when you came in, a lot of the information that's happening here is in this, but also there's pages for notes on 11 and 12. So feel free to fill those up. Come ask me some questions. Talk about it. See if I uh, interpreted some Greek wrong. Actually, there's, I'm not going to do that this morning at all. Well, maybe once. Hmm. We'll see. I really don't know how this sermon is going to go. Okay? It's been a great week. Flew back on Monday part of a wrestling tournament last night in Kelso till late at night. And uh, uh, I, I wasn't wrestling because if I was wrestling, I'd be in a wheelchair up here right now. Uh, it was my son, Cody. And so we're on the state next week, and it's been just a whole bunch of wrestling and tournaments and sitting. Um, sitting in a bleachers is enough wrestling for me right now. So, so this passage, uh, uh, Ephesians 2, is, is a fantastic passage talking about God creating something new, creating something we refer to and talk about as the church. Um, I'm going to, before we start, I'm going to pray this prayer over us here at Epic Life. I just want to read this. And this is the Apostle Paul praying a prayer over the church at Ephesus. And this is in verse uh, 15, uh, 16, and on in chapter 1. He says this, I pray for you constantly. And so I hear this, and I'm like, this, this is the prayer. I want, I want somebody to pray constantly for me, for our church, this way. Wouldn't it be wonderful? Um, there's other, other books like this, too, that this is how Paul is praying for the church. I pray for you constantly, asking God, the glorious Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, to give you spiritual wisdom and insight. Okay, that word insight is actually revelation, understanding, so that you might grow in your knowledge of God. I pray that your hearts will be flooded with light or the eyes of your heart would be open so that you can understand the confident hope he has given to those he has called. His holy people 
who are his rich and glorious inheritance. I also pray that you will understand the incredible greatness of God's power for us who believe in him. This is the same mighty power that raised Christ from the dead and seated him in the place of honor at God's right hand in the heavenly realms. Now, he is far above any ruler or authority or power or leader or anything else, not only in this world, but also in the world to come. For God has put all things under the authority of Christ and has made him head over all things for the benefit of the church. And the church is his body. It is made full and complete by Christ, who fills all things everywhere. Amen. Thank you, Paul, for that. If you ever, sometimes we look for, sometimes in our prayers, I think they get kind of monotonous. And they we get in this pattern of prayer. And it's like, I feel like I'm praying this same thing all the time. There's great prayers in the Bible to kind of open up and, and read it and pray it as we read it. And that Paul is prayed to the church. Of course, the entire book of the Psalms and other things. There's these, these passages and these understandings that we can pray differently for one another. Um, I would encourage you to do that. Ephesians 2. This is this idea of being divided, the Jewish and the Gentiles, and coming together in a, an undivided, a unified manner. So Paul here is writing to the church. You need to remember this. Paul is writing to the church. I think Dave even mentioned this last week that, that um, the, the, the passage here is not written to unbelievers. It's written to believers. If you're not a believer this morning, it might be kind of hard to understand this and to, to reconcile some of this in your mind. Um, but Paul is written to the church, the saints, those who know Christ. Um, not those who have not called on the name of Jesus. Because if we read this passage to the, the world, uh, to people who don't, do not know Jesus, it actually changes the theology and changes the understanding of this, this completely. Because then we are talking about perhaps um, the reconciliation of people who don't know Christ together or the peace of people who don't know Christ. But this is talking about the church. And Paul is writing into the church at Ephesus, talking about this church that was this conglomeration, this group of people, Jews and Gentiles, together in one place. This passage will say something completely different theologically if it was written to the people outside the church. And so we have to be very careful when we're looking at the Bible not to, to make sure we're looking at passages that are written to the church or written to the outside. Perhaps most of the Gospels were written to people who don't know Christ, people who don't understand the story of Jesus. And, and so pointing to someone to the book of John is a fantastic place to start with to help somebody understand Christ. So here we are with this passage. Um, don't forget that you Gentiles used to be outsiders. You were called uncircumcised heathen by the Jews. The Jews were proud of their circumcision, even though it affected only their bodies. It's really this statement that Paul's making, saying this, this sign, this identification of the Jews, only, didn't he, it only affected their bodies. It didn't even affect their heart. And that was God's purpose in the whole thing, that it would affect their heart that their hearts would be changed. They would be new people and then show that newness to other people. And so that was what God's um, goal was altogether. So we are God's workmanship, right? But in disobedience and we're heading to eternal judgment. So Jesus came to rescue us. We were separated from God and he is on this rescue mission to save us, to unify us to himself. 
The Old Testament example of that disunification was that between the Jews and the Gentiles. The Jews were this small group of people. The Gentiles was everybody else, everybody else. And sometimes I think we, we don't have the view of everybody else being the Gentiles. And so the small group of the Jews were the, the insiders, if you will, and the outsiders, those who did not belong, were the, were the Gentiles, all of them. Those Gentiles, as were the Jews, were subject to God's wrath because of human disobedience. But because of what God did, choosing the Jews to be his children, as we kind of alluded to in the very first chapter, he did something that they did not deserve and started to change them to bless the world. God's people then were set apart. The Jew, Jewish nation was, were set apart. They were different. They were different. Kind of like water and salt set apart. They're different. Different. Everything about them are different. Different um, substances. Liquid and solid. Different chemical compounds all together. Hydrogen and water and sodium and what? Good job. We're going to get there. Gentiles exemplified us uh, when we're separate from God, people who don't know Christ. Jews exemplified then us when we're saved by grace um, and we're separated from the world, from the wrath of God. God separated the Jews from the Gentiles that he might be able to save the Gentiles through the Jews. Did you hear this? The Jews started to believe that they were the only ones going to be saved, but God separated them so that he could save the Gentiles through the Jews. God called the Jews, beginning with Abraham, so that through these chosen people, he might demonstrate to the world the one true God. He gave the law to demonstrate holiness and gave the Messiah as the answer and salvation in that. Israel was to be a city on a hill to the Gentiles so that they would be able to be redeemed. But the Jews compromised their position. And in that compromise, they became like the Gentiles in every way. They looked at the grace God gave them, and they thumbed their nose at God and became like the Gentiles, even worshiping idols and things that weren't God, even inside of their religiosity. They were like the Gentiles in every way, and the light on that hill became very dim to the world. Warren Wiersbe writes, when the church is least like the world, the church does the most for the world. Listen, when the church is least like the world, the church does the most for the world. We are a a people who are separate, who are different, who are set apart from the world. And so this passage should never be seen as God reconciling society with the church. That's not what it's saying. The passage is talking about God reconciled the Jewish nation with the Gentiles, bringing them into one place called the church. The church then is called to live a life separate from society, yet reaching out to, evangelizing, uh, sharing the gospel in that society. We are in the world, but not of the world, right? So in Genesis chapter 12, Verse 13, we look at, we, we see, we realize that the beginning of Genesis 1 through 11 is the, let's call it the de-evolution of, of humanity. 
as they plunge into darkness uh, over and over and over, plunge away from God, run away from God, and God comes in at Genesis chapter chapter 12, verse 1. The Lord had said to Abraham, leave your native country, your relatives and your family, your father's family, and go to the land that I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you and make you famous, and you will be a blessing to others. I will bless those who bless you and curse those who treat you with contempt. All the families on the earth will be blessed through you. The Jews, at the very onset of the calling, this calling, this covenant that God was making with Abraham and the Jews, the Jews were supposed to be a blessing to the world. God was going to make them a blessing to the world, that the entire earth would be blessed because of the Jews. And the Jews pulled that back, became smaller and smaller and smaller to keep everybody out. And they were in the world. They were not necessarily, they became of the world and they're starting to worship. And so they, they pulled back into this relig- religious system that they weren't even worshiping God anymore. Becoming their own little thing. So we see Genesis 1 through 11, the decline of man without hope. Historians tell us, in fact, let, let me just read another, another verse here. So verse 11, back to Ephesians chapter 11. Uh, chapter 2. Uh, so by the, the Jews who are proud of their circumcision, even though it did not even affect their hearts, it, it, it only affect their bodies. In these days, you were living apart from Christ. You were excluded from citizenship among the people of Israel, and you did not know the covenant promises God had made to them. You lived in this world without God and without hope. And so he's talking to a, a church that's full of Gentiles. It's full of people who aren't Jewish. And he's speaking to them and said, this is who you were, but this is who you are. You were living in a world without hope. Historians will tell us that a cloud of hopelessness kind of covered history before Christ, especially. Religions would point to a hopeless eternity, reincarnation that perhaps you could never get out of, a hopelessness of paradise, a mean, dangerous gods, millions of mean and dangerous gods that were just this hopeless place. And Christianity came along, and there was this hope that God was giving this hope. And God really wanted to structure and show this hope through the Jewish nation, yet they just fell back into the world. And so Genesis 1 through 11 is this decline of man going to more and more hopelessness. And Genesis 12 is the story of Jesus. You talk about the messianic message. The messianic message starts with Abraham and starts building through and into when we find out about Jesus and him giving his life for us. 1 Thessalonians 4 13. Uh, and the reason I go to different passages isn't just so I can prove necessarily things, but the, the Bible is so rich and it has so much and it agrees with itself. You know, it goes through and it, and it agrees. Different writers, different places as he's writing to different places, he says kind of the same things and he points these things out. In verse 13 of chapter 4 of 1 Thessalonians, and now dear brothers and sisters, we want you to know what will happen to believers who have died. This is This is Paul writing into a Gentile world that had no hope. Their only hope was like worshiping uh, Diana in Ephesus for for sure. There was was a hopeless eternity, a hopeless afterlife, or different gods who would be punishing you and punishing you, and and every storm that came along was the next god's punishment. And so here uh, Paul is writing into the, the church of Thessalonica, giving them, helping them understand hope. You will not grieve like people who have no hope. 
For since we believe that Jesus died and was raised to life again, we also believe that when Jesus returns, God will bring back with him the believers who have died. We tell you this directly from the Lord. We who still are living when the Lord returns will not meet him ahead of those who have died. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a commanding shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God. First the believers who have died will rise from the grave, and then those together with him who are still alive and remain on the earth will be caught up in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Then we will be with the Lord forever. So encourage each other with these words. And that's Paul um, really pointing out what Jesus had already mentioned too, several places that we have hope. We have an eternal hope. We're not a hopeless people. Even, even uh, religions like, uh, like um, Islam came about 600 AD. And it, it, even in that, which is an adulterated Judaism and Christianity actually, it came into this, this system kind of creating this kind of hope thing, but it actually turns out it's hopeless as well, creating a system where man has to do right before God instead of God coming down and doing right for man. So um, he's going to talk about the, the in uh, Ephesians here, he's going to talk about the, what God does now. Now that you Gentiles were living apart from Christ, you were excluded from citizenship among the people of Israel, and you did not know the covenant promises of God. What were the covenant promises of God? They were to give hope to the world. This, I will be with you forever. I will connect with you as God. You are my people. I will not leave you nor forsake you. These covenant promises, not necessarily the law that we have, um, that they had at the time of sacrificial system, but the covenant of promises of God that he will not leave us or forsake us. You lived in this world without God and without hope, but now you've been unified with Christ Jesus. Once you were far away from God, now you have been brought near to him through the blood of Christ. Unified by Christ, not by man. Man is incapable of creating peace, right? We just can't do it. The next verse talks about peace, this reconciliation and unifying us together. And so when the Jews and the Gentiles came together, they came together in what Paul would call and what actually Jesus would call in Matthew, the church. He'd bring the church community together into this amazingly wonderful and beautiful eclectic group of people who are vastly different but become unified, come together and are one. And so, so I have water and I have salt. I love this. When I, when I discovered that you can add salt to water and it doesn't increase the water, that's amazing to me. This is, sometimes we think that when uh, it doesn't increase the level of the water. You guys know this if you were in chemistry, like in grade school, right? So salt can be added. This is going to be a little pink, isn't it? Because this is... Himalayan salt, and Himalayan salt, as we all know, is pink. I have no idea. Um, what's really cool about this is something that happens in the molecules, right, is going on. So we have, we have H2O, right? This is awesome. This is so good. All right, you, right? you guys know this. H2O, right? That's water. And then you have um, NaCl, right? That's, that's salt. And when you bring those together, it doesn't actually, like uh, two cups of salt doesn't make two more cups of water. 
Isn't that crazy? It seems like it would make two more cups of water, but it doesn't. It like goes inside the water somehow. It like diffuses inside the water and it, nothing increases. That doesn't make any sense to me. I'm thinking two cups of water plus two cups of salt makes two cups of solution, right? But that's not how it is. And so the water, right? If you, if, um, some of you are like, yeah, duh, this is obvious, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to show those of you who don't know this, right? There's H and there's H. These are hydrogen mixed with one oxygen, right? O, right? That's a, that's, a, that's a water molecule, right? And so along comes salt, and, and it does something crazy to this, this whole uh, chemical equation. It breaks it all apart and does something. And so when you're looking at salt water, it pops all this apart. And this is going to be crude, I understand. Uh, um, and you're going to have an H and an H and an H and an H. And uh, you're going to have O's attached to that, those H's. And, um, and one of these are positive and one's negative. Um, I can't remember. I think the O's positive or negative, I mean. We'll, we'll just go with this. Don't, don't quote me or do a science project on this, okay? And so, and so then you have the, the, uh, the salt coming in here, and it breaks this whole thing up and spreads it apart and brings it back together, where then you have the, if, if chlorine is the negative, it's going to be popped in there, and the, the, the uh, sodium is going to be popped out here, and they're going to attach and make a whole new diagram, a whole new chemical solution so that it, it squeezes inside the water, right? It becomes part of the water, and this becomes a whole new solution that you can't even tell anything happened. It is pink, though. Wow. That's crazy. Oh, it is. It says pink salt. There you go. So if it was white, I suppose it would be white. So anyway, and, and so if it's clear, it's going to be clear, and you can't even tell that the salt got in there. It's mixed in. It's like it's permeated into it. It didn't increase it necessarily. It became one, and it's so beautiful. Even, even more, if it wasn't just salt. I love the salt and water thing because it's a solid and a liquid, and it becomes this one thing. Even, even um, water by itself, H2O, it's like oxygen. Here it is, oxygen. And, and hydrogen, which is another gas, come together, and it makes liquid. It's like mind-blowing. I mean, if you really think about that, mind-blowing. And then we say, oh, the earth just kind of happened by accident. When you think about that, it can't just happen by accident. But this is really, this is what the church is. This is what the church is. The Jewish world comes together with the, the Gentile world, the rest of the world, and God made one something. What was that one something? He made the family of God. He made the church. He created this church that's together now. And then Paul would say, this church is not just together, not just kind of stuck on and, and we kind of come together, but this church is one. It's at peace together. And this word peace is really, really important. Now, you have, in verse 13, you have been united with Christ Jesus. And once you were far away from God, but now you have been brought near to God through the blood of Christ. And because of our bringing, being brought near to God, then we can be united as Jews and Gentiles together and become one family. For Christ himself has brought peace to us. He united Jews and Gentiles into one people when in his own body on the cross, cross he broke down of the walls of hostility that separated us. He brought peace to us. This word peace is a fantastic and really important word for us to understand. It's not the, the shallow end of um, there's no civil disobedience or disregard or, or the shallow end of peace where there's no strife. It's much more than that, much deeper than that. It's, it's, it, the, the word peace, shalom, really means to be complete 
or to be whole, like, like now, now we are complete, or to live well, right? True peace only uh, brought only through righteousness and justice. And so we become a, a new, new creature, a new creation. And we know the verses that Jesus says, when we come to Christ, we become a new creation, right? Something new. Now not fresh water, now not salt, but salt water, right? Something different. Now not just oxygen and not just the gas hydrogen, but now water. It's a beautiful, it's just so beautiful what we become as a church. And so our church, what we have is the problem in our church, right? We have this problem. We, we don't actually know any Jews, and a lot of Jews don't know any Gentiles anymore. We're still separate, right, in so many ways. But there are many of us now, we're coming together as a church. And the problem with this often is that we as a church, as Christ followers, still find ourselves separate all the time from us from other Christians. And so this builds into the church. We as the church are unified together. We are one body of believers together in the church. I'm going to get into that a little more in just a second. Um, we're, we're, uh, we were, we're set apart now as Christians, as the church, we're set apart through a final sacrifice and stamped by the Holy Spirit. And so verse 14, for Christ himself brought peace to us. He united the Jews and the Gentiles into one person. When through his body on the cross, he broke down this wall of hostility that separated us. He did this by ending the system of the law with his commandments and regulations. And he made peace between the Jews and the Gentiles by creating in himself one new people from two people. He broke hostility. Hostility was... Um, put to death by Jesus in those who know Christ. Hostility should not exist between Christians who are of Jewish and non-Jewish backgrounds anymore. But there is still hostility between those who know Christ and those who don't know Christ. And that's why we shouldn't read this um, outside of a, a church lens. There still is hostility between the Christians and those who are not Christians. And it's called salvation, uh, understanding the gospel. There is no longer, uh, in the church, no longer race, no longer slave or free, uh, etc. Those things don't exist in the church. The divide is between those who are saved and those who are not saved. Christians are called to be ambassadors for the, with the gospel so that people will come into the full fellowship of this country, this city, uh, this community and church. The hostility exists now between those who hate God and, toward, and uh, between those who love God. The promises of God are for those who are in the family of God. The children of God are the heirs to his wealth, and those outside are not the heirs to the wealth of the Lord. We are brothers and sisters and can live that Acts 2.42 life where we're sharing with each other and, and caring for each other and selling land and giving it and providing for one another. That can happen inside the church. Actually, the true sense of communism and socialism, if you will, the, the willing um, sharing of everything we have inside of a community, not the forced sharing that the earth says is communism and socialism, is this forced sharing, I'm going to make you do this, but this willing sharingness in between the household and the family of God. Um, not because of a compulsion, that sharing, but because of familial family love. True, that's where we are. Now, God has, through Jesus, created a brand new people, and we are part of that brand new people. We are identified as a brand new people, a church. 
uh, the church, the bride of Christ, the house of God, the holy city. These are terms that um, are terms for us as God's people. We are a new people, a new creation that God brought through Jesus. Two separate people, the Jews and the Gentiles, coming together to make one person through repentance and faith. Yes, still through repentance and faith, which the Jews are still responsible for, actually, now. Like water and salt, when the two are mixed together, there's no visible division at all. And there is no visible, there should be no visible division between us as well. So, um, this has bigger implications in the church, though. Because we walk in, we come, and God has created this, this body of unity, yet we find ourselves disunified often. I think the best way to understand, perhaps, the best way for some of us to understand um, uh, the church is to look at what marriage is supposed to be. Marriage is not a, a 50-50 union. It's not a, hey, you do all this for me, and I'll sit back and drink my beer on the couch. That's not how marriage is supposed to be. Um, marriage is like this, this, some people even call it 100%, 100%. Like, um, you, get, you give 100%, I'll give 100% back. That's actually not what it is. That is not actually, I, I, that, that's a good description of it, yes. But actually, marriage is more than that. It's a commitment to one another, a union in, to be one, one another. In fact, you, you lose your identity as an individual and become unified as a married individual. All right? People say often that uh, marriage is something that you keep your identity, you keep your individualism, and, and then you're just, you're, you're, you're connected, you're, you're married to this person who you really enjoy. No, no, no. Actually, you lose your identity so that everything that you do affects your body. Who's your body? Your husband or your wife, right? That's the same thing in the church. Everything we do affects the body. If you're a hand and, and you think you can just be cut off and take off, the body misses the hand. It's really hard to play volleyball anymore, okay? You, you're important. The community is important together. As a, a couple, right, it, you become one. You lose your identity as an individual and become a new identity, a new creation. Of course you still have um, an individuality of... of uh, of maybe thought you don't be you don't have to become like Pat doesn't have to become Ron that would be horrible right we we want you guys together to look like one one person together and the beauty of that is remarkable so it's not a hundred percent hundred percent how God points it out is more like we are going to walk forward a hundred percent I'm going to learn and discover everything that the my body needs what does my body need my wife. What does she need? I'm going to discover what that is and, and be a student of her and, 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 and bless her and, and care for her in the way that she needs. Not in the way that I need, the way that she needs. And she's going to do the same, most likely. But the thing is that even if she doesn't, as a Christ follower, I'm going to continue. That's the body of Christ together. What we do in the body of Christ, we stand at the door or over in the corner and get upset that nobody talks to us. When instead, perhaps, as the body of Christ, knowing we are bound together, we should be looking for ways to bless other people. When we are actively blessing other people, we stop thinking about our own needs and wants and desires because we are actively blessing someone else. It's something, those, those individual things kind of go away 
because we are actively engaged in blessing someone else. Many people will say, if you want to get out of a depression, this isn't 100% there, but if you want to get out of a depression, you start serving others and helping others and giving of your time and giving of your your energy and your love to others, and that that pulls us out of a, a focus on self. Of course, there's many issues with with depression, so don't take that too far. We can, we can pull ourselves out by serving and blessing one another. The church is that. We serve and bless one another because we have become one. We cannot separate this out. We can separate this out, actually, and it's a, a lot of hard work. It takes heat, probably, right? Uh, a, a lot of, it's going to hurt. It's going to, you know, ripping water apart it becomes something you don't even notice and recognize anymore. As a church, um, as a church, we'll never affirm divorce because it rips apart what God has put together. We will, of course, love and care for those who find themselves in that place. Of course, we will love and care for that and, and encourage and do our best to come alongside. All right. So God has made one new people in the Jews and the Gentiles. He's, he's created this church out of two groups. And together in verse 16, together as one body, Christ reconciled both groups to God. He reconciled us, meaning he's made things right. He's, he has brought us back. He reconciled both groups by means of his death on the cross and our hostility towards one another has been put to death. In other words, it should not exist anymore. He brought this good news of peace to you Gentiles who are far away from him and peace to the Jews who are near. Now all of us can come to the Father through the same Holy Spirit because of what Christ has done. Um, bringing peace. So, so we get involved in this, in this attempting to bring peace to the world. Man-made peace will never exist. I was reading this week that between um, uh, historical writings and documents show that between 1500 BC and something like 500 AD, there were there were several thousand eternal peace accords written. <laughs> Most of them lasted two years. So man's peace agreements do not last. They don't last. We try. We try to bring peace to the world without the power of Christ's recreated life. It only results in more war because one person says this is how peace is. The other person says this is how peace is. One person says this is how you lead the country. Another person says this is how you lead the country. Both people wanting a great country and going in the opposite direction. It creates war only. Peace without Christ is an impossibility. We can have a a pseudo-peace that's covered up in entertainment, covered up in uh, a, depre- a dumbing of humanity, perhaps, but it's not true peace. A, a dumbing of humanity. Um, I can't remember. Who, I can't think of the word for some reason. But but this way of just kind of kind of dumbing everybody down so they're they're not thinking about anything except themselves, and it has a semblance of peace, but isn't true <clears throat> real peace. And that's why. When it comes to dictatorships, they start burning books and they start killing people who know, who know things, who are smart and educated, because those people will talk out um, and bring people back. All right. So when the church is least like the world, it does the most for the world. Men and women, 
um, as we move forward, remember as a church, you've been identified. God has identified you as a church. He's done something miraculous in this community of believers. Very, very um, diverse group of believers. We understand that. And that's so important and so beautiful. And when we can figure out that diversity and that the, the, the way we need each other, the way the church um, needs uh, the one body together, we understand that it's very important for us to be together with one another. How foolish would it be to be married and live in a different country? What, what's the purpose there? What's the point there? That's just kind of foolishness, right? Um, how foolish it is for us as the body of believers to be unified together and covenanted together as the church, but then not be together, not learn from one another, not grow, not give, not serve, not, not um, give our, our time, talent, our, treasure, our um, um, gifting that God has given us to one another. Now, of course, this is about the Jews and the Gentiles and the becoming of one church. Um, that's happened. That happened 2,000 years ago. It happened. And now we continue to figure out the unity of the church and what's that, what that looks like. I'm not going to make any statements about the, the Israeli country, the country of Israel, the Jewish world. Um, but there are Messianic... One of my friends here in the town is a Messianic Jew. And he's a rabbi at a Messianic Jewish church. They are believers in Jesus who who still follow some of the, the Jewish traditions and, and understanding. I would love, I would love to have the, the heritage of being a Jew, right? And just that, that heritage is really beautiful, it seems like to me. I don't get that, right? Most of us don't get that. But we do get the calling of, that God put us and to unify us together, making us one person, the Jews and the Gentiles together inside the church. Let's be one person. Let's be different. Let's be called out from the world so that we can engage in the world. Remember, the Jews were called out from the world to be set apart so that they could bless the world. If we're not separated and called out from the world, we can't bless the world. It becomes very hard. Let's pray.